Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Alright everybody, today I have a special guest, Dr. Alison Brokow, she's a behavioral and sensory ecologist. She completed her PhD in the Smotherland lab from Texas A&M and she's currently doing a postdoc at Lehigh University. How are you doing Dr. Brokow? I'm good, how are you? Good, thanks. So the first question I have is, what does it mean to be a sensory ecologist? Um, sure, that's a great question. So basically, I am interested in how animals use their different senses to get around the world. So that can mean um, everything from how animals use their hearing to find food or to use vision to get around. Um, in my case, I focus primarily on how mammals use their sense of smell, specifically for foraging and finding food. And, and specifically in bats. Exactly. So you're a bat biologist, right? Yes. You're a bat expert. I try to be. <laughs> so when, when and how did your love for bats begin? Honestly, I don't totally know. Growing up, I, I grew up kind of in the country, in the woods. And so I always really liked animals. And I remember sitting out on like our deck uh, when I was a kid and there was one bat that would usually be flying around. I actually don't even know if it was the same bat every night, but for whatever reason, we just decided it was a female and she was married. So we, my dad would be like, oh look, Mrs. Bat is here. <laughs> and we would just watch her, it fly around. And then fast forward a few years later and I was in high school, I got a chance to go to the Virgin Islands and that was kind of my first time really seeing bats like not super up close but seeing them in a roost and not just flying around and I just thought they were really cool and kind of just looked for opportunities to study them and finally <laughs> figured it out in grad school. <laughs> That's amazing. Did Miss Bat have a name? Uh, just she was just Mrs. Bat. She was that Mrs. Was, Bat. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why she was married, but that's that's. that's <laughs> <laughs> so it was Mrs. and Mr. Bat. Yeah, I don't know. We only I I think it was only ever Mrs. Bat. Okay. So, Dr. Brokaw, I'm gonna give you a chance to clarify this vampire versus bat thing, just to start with, because I feel sure. like. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, everyone always associates bats with vampires, um, especially as we're coming up on, you know, it's August is almost over. It's officially spooky season. <laughs> and so, yeah, basically, right. Vampires, I guess you could argue they're, they're one species. There's actually over 1400 species of bats and all of all of those, I think it's now 1456 um, species. Only three of them drink blood. 
They don't care about garlic, as far as I know. And another fun one. For, so uh, vampires is a, a mythological creature, right? Yes. Bats are, bats are not mythological. Bats are not. So vampires <laughs> basically just, they come from myth, and there are only three species of bats that actually consume blood, right? Yes. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. So that's why you're saying <laughs> vampires don't care about garlic. They, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't care about garlic. yeah okay, right. Okay. So all the, like, the very, at least very Eastern European sort of vampire of, like, invisible in the mirror, repelled by garlic, um, you know, can't be out in the sun. That's actually a fun one because we, we think of bats as being nocturnal, and they are. They're active primarily at night, but it's actually not as unusual as we think of, of it to see a bat sort of in daylight usually close to sunset but there's actually some island bats that seem to have adapted to being on islands where there's no predators and they've become primarily active during the day um, that would be the main reason why they are active at night to avoid predators that's the the main thought or hypothesis about sort of why the you know ancient historic like you know prehistoric bat why it sort of why it was nocturnal why it learned to fly and why it probably ate insects was to take advantage of resources that other animals like birds weren't using and then also to not get eaten by things like birds <laughs> what so birds are the main predators generally yeah owls and hawks tend to and other birds of prey i think are the main predators, um, at least for most bats, especially in North America and Central America, probably too. Do you know why bats hang upside down? And if why is not a good question, at least how do they manage to do that? Um, yeah, so actually I can answer both of those. All oh, right. Because um, they're some of my favorite <laughs> random bat facts. So the first one is as to why bats hang upside down. The, the reason for the most part that we think bats do this has to do with the way that they fly and the way that they have to get airborne. Because of the shape of their wings, they are, most of them are not very good at getting up off of the ground. They have to have some air under them in order to get enough lift to like fully start flapping. So by hanging upside down, it's really easy because all you have to do is just like let go of your feet and then you have space to sort of get that air under you and get moving. It's also a quick, you know, by hanging upside down, you can access places that are harder for predators to access or that other animals aren't using. That's a that's a really interesting fact. So a bat yeah. cannot start flight from the ground. Some of them can. Some of them are can do it, but not very well. And then some cannot do it at all. Wow. Um, so there's variation, but yeah, for the most part, it's at least when you think of sort of the, the typical bat, they're not very good and they can't, they just, they don't have enough power to like launch themselves off the ground the way that like a bird can. Wow. And then as to the how, so basically when, when, when humans like are gripping something um, with our, like with our hands, we have to, you know, exert and contract the muscles in our wrists and hands to actually like hold on. And we have to continue to contract those muscles the entire time we're holding on. So eventually we get tired. Bats actually have adaptations in the tendons of their ankles that have these sort of ridges on the inside and it creates this locking mechanism. So when the bat closes its feet, it actually doesn't have to continue to contract those muscles. So it doesn't have to expend energy. So they can just hang and then they actually then have to contract muscles to let go. It's similar to what happens with our mandibles, right? Oh, I don't know. I think our default is to have our mouth 
shut and then we have to uh, actually spend energy to open our mouth so it, it tires you more to leave your mouth open than to leave your mouth closed yeah i guess I've, <laughs> I've never thought about it that way but yeah and i think that what's what also is helpful with the bats is that they're they're sort of essentially using gravity to help with with these sort of ridged tendon it's actually the the, sh the sheath around the tendon is ridged and it creates this like ladder that the you basically rest in um, which is why you can have bats that sometimes when bats die like they will continue to hang because they don't there's no contraction happening during that time uh, have you found any dead bats hanging i have yeah wow that's cool so dr Broco, do you mind if we so we're gonna continue sharing like fun facts about bats throughout the interview but do you mind now if we go a little bit more into your particular research sure of course Okay, so I've been reading your, your recent articles that you published, and I think it would be nice if you could explain what a other plume is before we actually go into the study that you did. What What's an other plume? Basically, you can imagine being in a room and if somebody sprays like a perfume or something that smells, we don't smell it right away. You don't smell it right away. And how strong that smell is, is gonna change over time. And so that's because odor or smell molecules move through the air basically via diffusion. So you have areas really close to the source that are going to be really high, high concentration, really strong odor. And as you get farther away, it that odor becomes less or that odor is not as concentrated. Air pushes those molecules around. And so it creates this sort of what we call turbulent or sort of swirling plume where you have spaces of odor and spaces of no odor. Um, so it would be like the path that carries like an odor pretty much. Yeah, basically you can think of it's, it's easiest to visualize if you think of like water mm -hmm. um, and if you think of something, I don't know if you were like sometimes looking at like a stream or something and there's maybe bubbles or surface and you can see that the way that those move around depending on how much the water, how mm -hmm. frothy the water is. And so you can get that same sort of variation, only instead of it being water and bubbles, it's air, air molecules. And odor molecules. The reason I ask is because bats use these other plumes to find their food. I'm going to quote your article here, something interesting that it says that environments with a high background clutter, such as forests, for example, echolocation may be inefficient. It's an inefficient mechanism for detecting objects, even at close ranges making olfactory cues all more important for detecting and localizing food resources. And this is interesting to me because I had the idea that echolocation was super precise. It seems like olfact olfactory cues are more precise than echolocation, at least in, in some environments. Yeah, so I, I would say maybe not more precise, but easier to interpret, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, it makes sense, yeah. So the reason that echolocation becomes really challenging in cluttered environments is because there's just so many more objects for the sound to echo off of. So sort of the visual equivalent would be trying to like find an object that is light green in a field of a bunch of other light green things. Um, it's going to be a lot harder to pick out that like one individual object based only if the shapes are different. So the, I, the sort of thought is that Anim I mean, all animals are doing this, but with bats, they, right, they primarily are using echolocation as sort of their main way of sensing the world. 
But sometimes when those echolocation cues are difficult to interpret, then they might rely on another cue like olfaction. So it might be, I roughly know that this is a tree. I can tell it's a tree from my echolocation, but echolocation isn't gonna be able to tell me exactly where the fruit is. And the echolocation can't tell me if that fruit is ripe or not, but odor can. So using species of bat that rely on olfactory cues, you thought that, for example, the morphology of the nose would be super important and would vary a lot across different species of bats, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the, that was the hypothesis of the article. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that paper was based on this idea. So if we think back to our odor plume, trying to separate spots where the concentration is of the odor is higher versus when it's lower. And one of the ways that lots of animals do this is we compare the concentration or the strength of an odor on one side of our body to the other side. Um, we do that by measuring and comparing the difference between our two nostrils. So if your nostrils are wider apart, then you have a greater chance of sort of covering that concentration gradient and getting a better contrast than if they're really close together. So the idea was sort of like, and we, and we call that the mechanism that The fancy word for that is tropotaxis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want olfactory tropotaxis, if you want like a science Friday word. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea was like, well, if, if the nostrils are wider in animal or in bats that we think are using odors, maybe it's because they're able to take advantage of this particular strategy to use odor blues. Yeah, and you did a lot of work to try to test this hypothesis. For example, you took measurements from mm -hmm. 328 specimens of 40 different species of bats uh, from four different families. So a, a, wide, a wide variety of diversity mm -hmm. within bats. And these were bats that were preserved and they were in a collection, right? Yeah, so they were all, all, all specimens that have been collected over the past, I think up to 70 years, some of the older ones. What I really like of this study is that you were worried that there was some pot potential shrinking effects of the preserved specimens. And so in order to calculate this effect, to have a, a precise study, you, you actually went and collected data from live bats. Yeah, so that had been a kind of a something that had been in the back of our heads and then it was a critique from a reviewer um, on an earlier version of the paper. And so I, I was actually in Belize to do the behavioral studies, but one of the great things about the the field work that I was doing in Belize is it was part of this big organized effort led by researchers from the American Museum of Natural History and from Western University, which is in Canada. So it's we kind of it's kind of like bat camp. It's like 40 bat researchers all descend on this eco lodge. The eco lodge helps has been like helps us get permits and supports the research and helps us set up the nets and, and do it. Um, so basically we're, we're just bringing in like hundreds of bats a night. So it was a great opportunity to be able to be like, all right, well, we're getting all these diversity, a bunch of these species that I've measured. Let's just double check that the measurements I'm getting from those specimens are comparable to the ones you'd get from a live bat. Did um, you find a lot of shrinkage effect? There was a little bit, but it was consistent. So with that paper, kind of the main measurement that ended up being important was was a ratio which was the ratio of how basically how wide the nostrils the width of the nostrils compared to the width of the head and between the 
museum bats and the live bats, that ratio was consistent. So there was no, even though it was maybe smaller, the like overall, or like the measurements might've been smaller, the overall ratio stayed the same, if that makes sense. And, and did you find a correlation between the, the distance between the nost nostrils and their olfactory tracking or? Sort of, so it ended up being a lot more complicated than I thought it was gonna be. As usual. But uh, just because it was, I was trying to also account for the fact that, you know, bats might have similar nostril shapes and widths simply because those species are more closely related um, or because of other ecological factors. Um, so such as like where they are flying or how they are echolocating. So some, most bats produce their echolocation calls from their mouth, um, but there's a whole subset of bats that actually produce at least some of their echolocation calls from their nose, <laughs> or they do a little bit of both. And so what, I, what we actually ended up finding was that the insect eating bats had wider relative nostrils compared to the fruit and nectar bats. And we think it's probably because the fruit and nectar bats in my study are all bats that echolocate primarily out of their nose. Uh, so, so there's some sort of trade-off between echolocation and using the, the nose for olfactory. Quite, quite possibly, or just that the evolutionary pressure of echolocating out of your nose is just stronger and more important than the olfactory bit. So it just has a stronger impact on, on the way that the bats evolved and olfaction is maybe, you know, secondary to those other strategies for getting around and eating. Dr. Broca, we, we need to do a, a little short break. When we come back from the break, can you tell us about your behavioral studies that you did in Belize and hopefully share some anecdotes from your time down there? Definitely. All right. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. So before the break, we were listening to Bats in the Belfry by Dispatch, and now we're listening to North 
by Fly by Midnight. Is there any particular reason why you picked these songs? Well, Bats in the Belfry. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Fly by North, I just like it. And I, it's just like a, I don't know, it kind of gives me a mind of like sort of migration of like birds and bats and journeying. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good driving song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Can you tell us about your time in Belize, please? You did some really cool experiments down there. Yeah, so Belize was was a wonderful experience. So kind of like I mentioned before the break, I the field work I was doing was partially organized as kind of this group. Um, so I've always referred to it as bat camp because it's really just a really off. It's, it was amazing opportunity to kind of get a chance to be in the field with you know, a bunch of people who were also grad students or also trainees, you know, learning how to do field work, figuring out science in the field, but also getting to have access to these people who have been studying bats for decades um, or have been working in these spaces for really long periods of time. And so just having this cool depth of, you know, knowledge to draw from, which ended up being really important <laughs> for me um, so I actually was in Belize for, I did two, two trips to Belize and the first year I actually got no data <laughs> wow. or no usable data. Wow. Uh, the reason I decided or was interested in how bats use smell is because there hasn't been a lot of research into how they're using smell and specifically there's not necessarily a lot of work in the behavior of how they're using smell beyond just that they can discriminate between ripe or unripe fruit. Uh, it turns out that's probably for a reason because it's, it was really hard to try to get the bats to do a task using only smell, right? Because we can't just tell them like, do this thing, but only use your nose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how, how did you manage to plan an experiment like that? It took, it was a lot of just trial and error. Um, and basically what ended up working out was I sort of had to find the right species and find the right experimental setup. So. I ended up using this species called the northern yellow-shouldered bat. They're really cute. They're not very large. They're like 15 to 18 grams. They eat fruit. The males have these bright sort of, or like these dark orange shoulder patches that produce an, a social odor as well. But what was great about these bats is that unlike a lot of other bats, um, they don't have a, t a membrane connecting their feet. So most bats have like a, a, a tail and then like a membrane that connects from the ankles to the tail. Um, these bats don't have a tail and they don't have a membrane. They just have this little hairy butt and little hairy legs. And so they were more comfortable crawling around, I think. Um, and for my, because of the way I was recording data, I wanted to be able to trace the path that the bat was actually moving. Um, so I needed the bat to crawl and not flap or fly around or do other things. And it also helped, I, I basically sort of had to create like a, a vertical wall that the bat would then, they had to crawl down in order to find an odor. And so I would put them in this little arena in the dark, lit with infrared light, and then wait until they crawled to the bottom and they had to choose between a side or a dish that contained a piece of banana or a piece of fabric that smelled like banana and then just counting up like could they do it and then what the those tracks looked like as they were doing it 
Yeah, and again, you did a lot of work. So in the article, it says that using 10 bats, you recorded 648 behavioral assays. It's a lot, right? It's a lot of work. Yeah, especially since I did it only over about a week and a half. Wow. <laughs> so I basically just didn't sleep for like wow. <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> did you, did you, were you able to recognize your each bat at the end of this amount of time you spent serving them? Could you tell um, like their personalities apart? A little bit. They definitely, so w the other thing that I figured out sort of made made doing these assays easier, especially on such a crunched timeline, was people would go out, catch a bunch of bats. I would pick out like 10 of this particular species. And basically I would put them in the arena and see who was willing to put up with it. <laughs> and if they were like, nope, or they flapped around or they didn't do anything, like they got to go home. Um, and I kept the ones that <laughs> behaved. And they, I did have to sort of train them to recognize that banana was a good source food source. I don't know if I ever really could tell individuals apart, but they definitely like, so I, I was doing it for two weeks. I kept sort of each batch of bats for about a week. Um, and definitely by the end of the week, kind of at the end of the night before I, or yeah, the end of the night, sun came up, I would go, before I would go to bed, um, I would put a dish of like extra banana in there and with all of them in a, a little cage and they would all just rush to the banana and like fight over it and like be elbowing each other like to try to get into these banana dishes um, which just always like made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. So they actually love banana then? Yeah, yeah, they they were that and that was the other thing that was great about this species is um, they were one that seemed to just consistently like you put banana in front of their face and they're like sure I'll take that. <laughs> what happened when they Some bats are kind of like ew, no. <laughs> What happened when they got the wrong choice? Like when they went to the chemical that smelled like banana and it was not the actual banana? Um, so I did, I because I wanted to control for like the echolocation cue, I still gave them an object. So it was actually, um, I cut pieces of like cosmetic sponge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, sorry, that's, would, that's what I meant. They would try sorry. to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they would try to eat it and they would, yeah, they would, they would, they would put it, it pick, They would pick it up in their mouth and just like, suck on it i guess i don't know because <laughs> basically what they would do is that usually they would kind of crawl down um you know get to a point they'd move their head around and then i designated them making a choice as to them touching their nose to the either the sponge or the banana um and most of the time that meant that they actually like picked it up and then they would maybe they'd, they'd reverse crawl back up and then kind of sit there with it and then sometimes they would just like spit it out if it wasn't <laughs> actually banana. <laughs> So, Alison, you mentioned that there was like 40 biologists or something like that in this mm -hmm. station. And did most of them work with bats? Um, pretty much, yeah. I think the one year I was there, there was like two people who were herpetologists. So they would go out and like look for snakes mm -hmm. while the rest of us were <laughs> taking data from bats. <laughs> so I guess my question is, what happens when you put 40 people, 40 sleepless people living together in a field station? Is it what, I mean, I, I, I guess crazy things might happen, right? Pretty much just by the end, we're all too tired to like, to do anything. I will say, so it was, uh, this is like the cushiest field work I probably have ever done and will ever do. So we were actually staying at like an eco lodge that normally hosts people like on vacation. And so we, you know, we were fed three meals a day. We didn't have to do our own cooking. We were in cabins with hot water and showers and like real beds. And then I think also because you have like this whole group of 
of biologists and people, it means that when it comes to like the actually going out and capturing bats or doing a lot of the sort of post-processing, so measuring them, collecting, basically it, it, everybody in the in the group also would all have their own individual projects. So these bats would kind of get passed around to kind of maximize the amount of data we could get from each individual. So collecting things like hair samples, you know, taking measurements, figuring out the species. There were a couple students or people who were students at the time who were, you know, would collect the parasites off of the flat, off of the bats. Basically any kind of like biological sample or like thing that you could get from bats, we would try to get from as many of these as possible. And because there were so many people, some of that responsibility would get a little bit spread out. That's cool. So my my friends would tease me because I would I would I would hang out. Everybody would go out for the night to to set up nets and capture the bats. I would stay back and release the bats from the previous night, and then I would go like hide in my little cave and be there all night measuring bats. Every once in a while, I would like wander out and like see how things were going, depending on like how well the bats are behaving or or whatnot, or just take a break. And then I would go back into my little cave, and then I would just like emerge again when the sun came up. <laughs> Like go to breakfast and then go to bed. <laughs> wow, it must must have been like super tiring, right? After a week of that, a week and a half. Yeah, and, and actually, what was really great is so always the last night is sort of you know everything's been packed up, all the gear is packed up, people have packed away their samples, and so that last night is kind of just everyone hanging out. the The lodge has a bar, um, so we play music and yeah. just kind of enjoy one hang night out and decompress and nice. Can you say why it is important to preserve bats? So bats are incredibly diverse. Like I said earlier, we have over 1,400 different species. Bats are the second most diverse group of mammals after rodents. Well, in terms of species number, I would potentially argue that they are the most diverse in terms of what they do in the environment. So you have bats that eat fruit, Um, and helps disperse seeds in ecosystems. There's bats that drink nectar and so are really important pollinators for a lot of plants. I think there's something like 500 plants are pollinated either exclusively or mostly by bats, including a lot of plants that humans use for various things. So the most famous one being tequila, agave is pollinated primarily by bats. But stuff like like balsa is also pollinated by bats. Durian, which is really a really important um, economic crop in Southeast Asia, is pollinated by bats. Um, so lots of ecosystem services for for plants and for insect eating. Is there any way, common people that would like to contribute to the conservation of bats? What can they do in their houses or anything to to help preserve bats? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the most important is if you can have habitat that supports bats. That can mean having, you know, having native plants in your backyard that attract native insects, especially night flying insects are going to be really good for providing a place for bats to come to come eat, particularly in North America. Uh, having places where bats can roost, that can be a bat house, so an artificial roost, but it can also be as simple as like if you have trees on your property don't cut down the dead limbs because those dead limbs can be really important habitat for bats and lots of other wildlife if you have water sources or can can provide water sources for bats especially areas that are like not that the bats can easily access um that's a, another good one and then really just 
I honestly, I think a big one is continuing to kind of just emphasize that bats are important in some, in maybe not keystone species, but they do play really important roles in the ecosystems, both that be- in ways that benefit humans and in ways that just benefit everybody. <laughs> they aren't scary. They're not something to be persecuted or dangerous. Yeah, actually, I had a question from the audience that besides rabies, are there any diseases that bats carry? When we're talking about North American or Texas bats, um, rabies is going to be the main concern. And actually, rabies, it's a tricky one to talk about because it's, you know, there's no cure. So you, you want to not get it. and But it's also really easy to prevent. But honestly, most wild bats do not have rabies. We tend to see a sort of a biased sample because the bats that are more likely to encounter humans, you know, usually that means something's gone wrong. Um, And so a lot of times that gone wrong is something like being sick with rabies. Myth bust, bats get sick from rabies. I remember when I was growing up, I was told that, oh, bats can carry rabies and like not get sick from it and can still spread it and like keep living. Just like in other other mammals, rabies is fatal to bats. It will eventually kill them. If they are rabid, there's no cure. Um, So just to throw that out there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then as far as other diseases, um, they've been linked to other viruses, um, including Ebola and Nipah and Hendra virus. Those are not really issues in North America or really in most of the Americas. And honestly, the best way to like minimize those risks is just not disturbing bats at roosts um, and just minimizing the amount of overlap and contact that humans have with with these with these animals. Dr. Broca, we need to do another break and then we'll be back with more science stories. And we actually, actually want to talk to you about your strong social media presence, which <laughs> is amazing. And your your bat blog that it's also really cool and i actually have a lot of questions that i took from your blog all right <laughs> sounds good science stories science stories science stories science stories science stories science stories So high, and no way boys will sail tonight. For fear in eyes, I hear them sigh. With ropes and chains, we'll win this fight. The captain orders men to board. The lightning flash, the thunder roar. The crashing waves, the broken oar. The battered bodies reaching shore. A rugged hand will save my plight. Although my friend, he's a pleasant sight. From this fury the giant roars And through the waves I see the light And fly, you can fly forever Fly away, you can fly away Tonight, we can fly together Fly away, you 
All right. So before before the break, we were listening to "Fly Forever" by the Elders, and now we're listening to "Out of the Woods" by Taylor Swift. And again, a uh, recurring theme: flying. I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a great online presence, and I think your most successful platform right now is TikTok. You have like 50k followers, something like that. Um, almost. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I mean, why did you decide to do that? I, I guess it takes quite some work as well, right? And I've seen your videos and they're well produced. Yeah, it does. It does take some effort. So I think I kind of like lots of people, um, you know, got into TikTok during the pandemic <laughs> or during kind of kind of the worst. But I actually, I was a little bit late. I think I didn't start till the beginning of 2021. But yeah, I just I think social media it can be a great way to just sort of share science info. Um, and with something like bats, um, I've been actually really surprised and grateful and um, it excited to see that people are really into bats <laughs> um, and really like learning and seeing them. And I really like being able to highlight weirder and more unusual things that you don't necessarily see if you Google like facts about bats um so it's fun to kind of get to pull out some of that stuff that you know the average person just doesn't even necessarily know to ask and then sometimes people ask me questions where i'm like i have never thought of that let me try to figure it out <laughs> that's really cool that's really cool and actually there's a project that you did that i thought it was amazing that is asking an artificial intelligence artist to draw the bats and the only information you provide was the bat name so first of all how does that ai artist work um, so I use, so there's, I think it's been like a, it's been kind of been around for a while. Um, I actually saw it, somebody else had done it. So the thing about TikTok and it's in social media is you're basically just sort of copying the ideas of other people. And then in my case, I try to take these trends and make them about bats and about science any way I can. So I saw somebody do it where it's basically you, you just input these keywords into these different algorithms that you know other people have built and it spits out a picture and so i saw somebody did it where she you know was having the ai draw uh like different fairies and like creatures from folklore and i was kind of like that's cool what, ha what would happen if i put bat names <laughs> in were you happy with the result yeah actually i was pleasantly surprised overall i will say i i was a little bit discerning i didn't necessarily share all of the ones that i actually made and the ones that turned out the best were bats with common names that are a little bit more descriptive. So common names in bats are not standardized the way that common names in, in birds and some other animals are. Bat biologists aren't like super creative, right? Like we have bats that are the big brown bat and the little brown bat, like very basic descriptors, which are great descriptors for the bat, but you know, don't necessarily paint like a Yeah, it's a hard, it's hard to plug that into an algorithm. Yeah. Right? yeah. So yeah, so I kind of tried to choose ones that, you know, I knew would have a little bit more interesting connotation. So like the bumblebee bat was one that you could clearly see that the AI was like a bumblebee, but try to make it into a bat. <laughs> So like if you look closely at like the face, like if I look closely at the faces, they were like these sort of weird amalgamations of like insect and bat that like were a little bit scary if you looked at it for too long. But if you looked at it just like quickly, you're like, oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Actually, what is your name in social media so people can go and follow you? I am A-L-Y-B underscore Batgirl. 
perfect yeah so for amazing videos and content about bats <laughs> you should definitely follow this this uh, social media platforms that are amazing there this this profile is so good yeah and what is your website because in your website you have a bad blog that you post really interesting stuff can you share your website as well is it's just www.alysonbrokaw.com so it's just my name alisonbrokaw.com yeah and there for example in the in the blog you might find super interesting articles for example about there's a punk bat like what do you mean yeah we, yeah we, why, we could call it the punk bat <laughs> why why did you call it the punk bat um yeah so that is uh oh the common name is i think it's chapin's free-tailed bat it's a bat that's found in africa and the males have this really spectacular mohawk basically yeah on their head of these like white hairs that stick straight up kind of in like a fan down the center of their head it's um, it's amazing yeah i i yeah. would never imagine bat would have that and then also i was really surprised about some bats have pockets <laughs> yeah um i was actually really proud of that that analogy yeah so there's a actually a whole group of bats that are called the sack winged bats and they're called that because biologists bat biologists are super creative and the bats literally just have some variation of a little sack or pouch uh, usually in the uh kind of where their elbow would be um though some of them have that pouch in other spots so i think one species has the pouch like above the elbow one actually has a pouch on its tail and they they actually the males at least in the most well-studied species the greater sack wing bat the males make this perfume of saliva urine and like body secretions and then they mix it in those pouches and then they wave it at the females mm. <laughs> um, during Delicious. during Delicious. mating yeah <laughs> and there's also another really interesting story that i actually did a little bit of research here and i contacted a Samoan friend I have because I, I learned from your blog that Samoan flying foxes, which are a particular species of bat, they are a really huge part of the folklore or that there are many myths and legends that involve flying foxes in Samoa. And so if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to play an audio from this Samoan friend that I have. So he's actually half New Zealander and half Samoan. His, ma his mom is Samoan. But he's really proud of being someone, and he was really happy when I asked about this cool. flying fox uh, myth and legends. And I hope, if you don't mind, this is a, a, a two-minute story, and let's see if we can hear it properly. Okay? You, do you mind if I share this? Yeah, sounds great. So one of the best Samoan legends that I know about is the flying fox and the story of Leo Tongi Tupa Itia, who was the Samoan maiden in distress. Uh, Leo Tonga was married to Tuitonga, the king of Tonga, and the king had two wives. Oh man. Leo Tonga, who was Samoan, Manu, Manu, and the other was Tonga. As a result, Leo Tonga spent much time alone in the woods. Yeah. And, and when the king and his friends planned to hunt foxes, flying foxes, she would warn the bats in order to spite her husband. So the flying foxes would come to recognize the unhappy Leotongi as their friend 
And one day, the king came so angry that he ordered Liu Tonga to be burned alive. The unlucky one was dragged by his men into the bush, and the story goes, was bound by a fork of a fikau tree and set fire to it. And of course, not wishing to hear Liu Tonga's screams, he, they returned to the village. But as soon as the flames began to rise, something truly extraordinary took place. Thousands of flying foxes came out of the jungle and they extinguished the fire by urinating on it. When the king's attendants returned, they found Liotongi still alive and the fire out. So the king Tsutonga ordered Liotongi to be taken and abandoned on an uninhabited island with no food. The next day a multitude of flying foxes appeared and each bringing some kind of food to Liotongi. The bats continued their way to feed it for days, for days, for days. And a Fijian, Tui Aya, happened to be sailed close to that land that day. And Leotongi came up to call him and begged him to take her along with him. This he did gladly, and, and the rest is history. She was a very good-looking woman. Uh, he married her, and in due time, she bore a son. What a story, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, big shout-out to James Laurie, my, my good friend, that he was nice enough to share this story with us. I, I I loved it. I heard it many times already. Yeah, that's so cool. And actually, it's funny because in your blog you mentioned that there's a bat that got bird of the year in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. What happened there? Why why did they? Yeah, so that was just this past fall, I think. And so basically, it was like the bird of the year. So New Zealand island has lots of lots of lots of animals, including lots of birds that are you know found only on in New Zealand and a lot of them are either threatened or endangered and so I think years ago you know this the New Zealand bird organization had kind of made this you know little game online where people vote on their favorite New Zealand bird and because the New Zealand is also special in that it only has two species of bats which are both very cool they You know, I was talking about how bats are not usually very good on the ground. The one species of New Zealand bat is actually quite good on the ground and maybe pollinates these ground flowers, <laughs> which is wild. And so that one is that that particular bat, the um, the short-tailed bat, New Zealand short-tailed bat, has become pretty relatively well known, at least in certain circles, as being this sort of pollinator and it sings. But the uh, the other uh, they. The word for news in New Zealand for bats is, I think, peka peka or pika pika. I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation. But the other one is the long-tailed bat, um, which is also, I believe, either threatened or endangered and not as much is known about them. So the idea was just, you know, raise awareness that this bat exists and sort of teach, give opportunity to teach people about it. And it ended up, you know, just popular vote winning. <laughs> winning part of the year <laughs> that's so funny i can't believe it yeah that's so funny i'm gonna definitely yeah. make jokes to my friend about this i mean i can believe it because bats are obviously superior to birds of course so. <laughs> of course yeah and, and you say that with a really unbiased opinion right unbiased completely <laughs> so i have a couple of, of instagram questions to to round up the interview i have a question i don't know if you know but i'm based in san marcos and i get a lot of people from austin following the show And so people ask, what's up with the Austin bats? Um, yeah, so the Austin bats, so the the Congress Avenue Bridge just runs through downtown Austin, has a colony of between one and two million Mexican free-tailed bats living 
underneath it. I actually, I was just in Austin a couple weeks ago for a bat conference. And it was great because basically every night after kind of conference things ended, you know, we would all just wander over to the bridge and watch the bats come out. And yeah, so, and I, I believe I looked it up once. I want to say the Austin Bat Bridge, if it's not the largest like urban bat colony, it's certainly in the running, probably top five, like in the world of wow. these really large colonies of bats living in these really, really urban areas. So would um, you say that's one of the best spots to watch bats? So that is a great one. I would actually also suggest, especially for your for your Texas listeners, and also not very far from San Marcos, is uh, Bracken Cave, which is owned um, and maintained by Bat Conservation International and the Nature Conservancy. And Bracken Cave is the world's largest known bat colony, with approximately 15 to 20 million uh, Mexican free-tailed bats that emerge every night wow peaking around august wow that's that's amazing yeah it's uh i was there and i think i cried like three times it's amazing <laughs> um, i mean maybe that's just a bat biologist thing but it is really like it's a spectacular you know you just kind of sit outside the mouth of the cave and the bats they call it the batnado the bats sort of because of the way the cave is shaped the bats have to kind of do these big circles out of the cave before they can really get up into the sky. Um, and then they, you know, it creates this big, long sort of ribbon of bats in the sky. And there's hawks that hang out to like wait to try to wow. grab bats. There's snakes that hang out that wait to try to grab bats. That's so cool. I'm, I'm definitely gonna go and check it out, yeah. Yeah, you really should. Yeah, you can, uh, Bat Conservation International does viewings. Um, you can sign up if you're a member, I think it's free. Uh, otherwise, I think it's like, I don't know, $15, $30 or something. And they, they do viewings like throughout the summer that you can like sign up for ahead of time. Dr. Brokow, I'm not responsible for this question. This was an Instagram question. Who is your favorite Batman? <laughs> I honestly don't really have one. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm always a little bit, I don't know, incognito or like lying because my 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 handle for all my socials is has batgirl in the title so i actually sometimes get tagged in like these really random like batman or batgirl comic things um <laughs> but yeah i'm not really a comic book person <laughs> it's okay fair enough and then finally i think you summarized the whole idea of science stories of this podcast really well in your in your website do you mind if i read it sure So you say, for many people, a scientist is someone who wears a white lab coat, often a white male. I think it's more important to show that scientists are also people with hobbies, families, and lives beyond the lab or the field. It shouldn't matter what you look like, how you dress, or where you come from. Anyone can be a scientist. Anyone can be a scientist. When I'm not sciencing, I can be found hanging out with my family and dog, playing ultimate frisbee, running or creating renaissance fair inspired cosplays and i think that's amazing and and this is all what this podcast is about so do you have any advice for someone that is thinking of getting into science do it <laughs> uh yeah so i was actually um i was kind of thinking about this the other day and i think one of the things that i've sort of decided for myself and i think is really important to remember is that 
We also tend to think of scientists and scientists are portrayed in the media as sort of these genius figures, right? These people who are like just super brilliant at everything and have or have a gazillion PhDs for some reason or like, right, like this very genius stereotype. And I think it's really important to to just know that like, yeah, you have to be smart, but like you don't have to be a genius to be a scientist. And honestly, most of science is not about what you know. It's about how you figure it out. Um, and so it really comes down, like it's less about how smart you are and more just about, you know, being, you know, being curious and being excited and being able to shift through ideas and thoughts and to try to figure something out. And also acknowledging that like most of the time you probably aren't, you aren't gonna get it. You're not gonna get the answer and that's okay. And that's what makes science fun. And so I think just, yeah, it's not about what you know. <laughs> um, it's about the process of learning it. And that's what being a scientist is. And I think anyone can do that. I couldn't subscribe more to what you just said. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a perfect closure for this interview. Thank you so much. Did you have a good time? Yeah, no, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. <laughs> Thank you for listening Science Stories. Wow. Wow.